I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story, season four, episode 14, Island. The old man and Bill the dog trailed Stevie down a pine-needle-carpeted path. There were handmade wooden signs with yellow inlaid arrows and labels nailed to trees at trail intersections. There were names like Tuckalichi Path and Sequachi Climb. Some called out local features like Dinosaur Rock or Little Falls. What is this place? The old man asked Stevie. Camp was the one-word reply as Stevie pushed ahead. What kind of camp? The old man asked. I don't know, Stevie said, unhappy at having to clarify some sort of old church camp. The old man quoted Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Petey looked at him like he was crazy. Whatever! They pushed on. The pine needle path gave way to a wider gravel road. The old man waited at each new intersection to make sure the others were still with him. The area appeared to be safe, but he wanted to make sure they maintained space between them in case they met any new threats. Their encounter with the Southside boys had proven the worth of simple tactics like this. The post-apocalyptic world valued older skills like tracking and reconnaissance, and this was very different than skills learned in the low-risk 21st century. Modern civilization convinced people to stress and worry about global crises and politics. People forgot to take care of their own backyards. People forgot how to do simple, useful things. How long before tactical knowledge replaced what used to be considered valuable? How long before knowing how to stalk and flank an opponent was more important than multiplication tables. How long before knowing how to half the spear or 
dress game would replace knowing how to read and write. They came upon the first of the summer camp cabins, which were spread at intervals along the gravel road. The cabins were set back into the pine trees at various angles and depths to give each the impression of individuality apart from the organized camp. Paths led up to each wooden screen door. The paths were lined with roundish rocks, painted white like bright teeth leading into the mossy maw of a woodland predator. The cabins were constructed of rough-hewn, wide plank pine, stained dark brown to better blend in with their surroundings. Their aged cedar shingle roofs were green with moss under the pine canopy. Over each cabin door was a sign with the cabin name spelled out in rustic letters, the handiwork of an arts and crafts instructor with a router bit too dull for the task. The cabins were named after birds, wren, blue jay, eagle, and oriole. Each one gave the impression of being its own little secret hideaway or redoubt. As dark as this camp seemed now, the old man could remember spending weeks of his youth long lost in the path at summer camp in New Jersey. These memories appeared as fragments of pictures, lines of happy campers marching back to their bunks after a challenging morning of archery practice led by a young, enthusiastic counselor named Ben or Chuck, some college student in the bloom of their life. The kids would change into their trunks, grab their towels from where they hung drying, and scamper down to the lake for an afternoon swim. They weren't bad memories. He had made some transitory friendships over those summers. Summer camps, he concluded, would be one more cultural artifact destroyed by the apocalypse. Petey slowed his march and became more cautious as they crept by the cabins one at a time, observing, looking for movement, and listening for the sounds of occupation. There was movement, but it was from squirrels chasing each other around the pine trees, and there was noise from a disturbed blue jay in the bush at the cabin side, but there was otherwise no sign of life. Some of the cabin doors were canted open as if they had been used or at least searched since the apocalypse. In a few minutes, they slowly approached the center of the camp where there were administration buildings, a chapel with a towering wooden cross, and a few outbuildings. Here there were signs of activity. There were scraps of trash and circles of gray ash with charred bottles and cans. 
The old man caught up to Petey and grabbed his arm. Let's make a quick check of these buildings. Petey looked annoyed. There's nothing left here, and I want to get to Brittany. Humor me, the old man replied. He knew Petey was in a hurry, but thought it wise to check for threats. Another simple tactic. Don't allow unknown threats in your flank. Carefully, they investigated the camp buildings. In the admin building, the shelves and closets had been ransacked and junk was piled on the floor. Empty food cans, plastic bags, and trash were scattered everywhere. But the occupation did not appear to be recent. They moved on. Zane and Warren had caught up and took up a position of cover off to one side while the old man and Petey went through the buildings with Bill. Someone or a group had been living at some point inside the chapel. It had the musty, greasy smell of death. The floor was covered with trash. There was a fire pit unceremoniously positioned in the open space in front of the altar. Some of the pews had been broken up for fuel. More empty cans and bags and clothes were here. And a bedroll. The bedroll had someone or something in it. The old man picked his way through the trash and rubble to investigate. Bill joined him, head held low. Stevie stayed back by the door. The body had been dead for a long time. The sleeping bag, a waxy petri dish with months of rot and decomposition. Gray hair framed a yellow skull. The old man looked up at the towering wooden cross that framed the altar and shook his head. After scouting the camp to make sure it was secure, the old man decided they should take a break. Petey wanted to push on, but they had been pushing all day, and the old man thought they needed to take a rest and eat something. Pushing through when they were tired could lead to mistakes. Mistakes got people killed. Another basic survival tactic. We're really close, Petey argued. The lake's just down the road a mile or so. We can rest when we get to Brittany. But the old man stood firm and they compromised on a short rest. The old man set up Bill's collapsible travel bowl with some food and water from the dog's pack. He sat on a log with Zane, and they shared a tin of sardines. Petey ate a granola bar and slugged some water from his bottle, but continued to pace impatiently until the others shouldered their packs and again began to follow. The party continued down a gravel road that eventually came out onto a small, sandy beach beside the lake. 
The beach was small and boxed in by trees on all sides. The type of beach where they had brought in truckloads of sand to carve out of the woods this place for swimming lessons and to beach the old canoes. The old man suddenly remembered having won the underwater swimming contest. Even when he was eight years old, he had good lungs. There was an aluminum dock that had been hauled up onto the beach and a wooden lifeguard stand painted white. The old man looked around and thought, The apocalypse must have hit after camp season was over. Lucky for the camp. Otherwise, they would have had a hundred kids sick and dying in these cabins and their inexperienced college-age counselors helplessly dying alongside. The lake was long and narrow with a large forested island prominent a few hundred yards from shore. Petey led them past the beach to a boat garage built into the bank of the lake beside the beach. There was space for a motorboat in the garage, but it had been pulled out with the end of the season. Petey climbed around the side of the building and disappeared. When he emerged, he was dragging a green fiberglass canoe. What's with a boat, kid? The old man asked. This is how we get to Brittany, Petey said, pushing the canoe into the lake and pointing to the island out in the lake. The old man looked at the island, then at the canoe. Ah, uh, okay. How many people can we get in that? Three, maybe four, I guess, Petey said, as if he hadn't thought about the logistics. Okay, we'll take Zane, and he can come back for Warren and Willie, the old man said. Zane, you okay with that? Yeah, no problem, Zane replied. What about Bill? He continued, motioning at the big dog who was suspiciously eyeing the canoe. He can ride with us, the old man said. Bill, get in the boat. He continued talking to the dog. He didn't know if there was a German command for get in the boat. But Bill was having none of it. He backed away from the canoe with his head down and ears back. The old man stepped to the dog and bent down to hold the dog's head and look into his eyes, addressing the dog directly. What's the matter, soldier? Afraid of the canoe? Come on, let's go. It'll be fine. He tried to pull the dog into the canoe by his harness, but Bill dug in his feet and wouldn't budge, digging hard into the gravel. Swearing under his breath, the old man struggled to lift a big dog and carried him to the canoe. He managed to get the dog partly in. Bill had splayed his legs, intense to prevent this attempt at insertion, and as soon as the old man let go, 
Bill scrambled out into the shallow water, almost flipping the canoe in the process. Fine! I'm not going to fight with you. You can stay here. Come on, Petey, let's go. The dog backed up on the shore and looked chagrined. With Petey in the front of the canoe, Zane in the back, and the old man in the middle, they pushed off and glided into the stillness of the afternoon. With each pull of the paddles, the dock retreated, and the island got closer. Bill, the dog, was not happy with being left behind. He paced the shore, whining at the lake. Finally, he plunged in and began to swim after the canoe. Jeez, the old man growled. What's that idiot dog doing? Looks like he's coming with us after all, Zane said, smiling. I'd better not have to jump in and save him. He looks like he's doing fine, Zane said as he looked back, turning his neck from the stern of the boat. Indeed, the big dog was doing fine. He wasn't struggling at all. He was a natural swimmer and seemed to be quite enjoying himself in the water. He had his head low in the water, breathing through his nose like a crocodile. His big body with its curly hair buoyed him like doggy water wings. Before long, Bill was happily swimming alongside the canoe and pulled ahead to beat them to the island. He met them when they pushed the canoe up onto the shingle. Jeez, dog, the old man said, fruitlessly raising his hand to shield himself from the cascade of water thrown off as the dog shook himself dry. As the prow of the canoe touched the rocky shingle, Petey was already up and out of the canoe. He was heading along a barely discernible fisherman's path that split between wild blueberry shrubs at the end of the narrow embankment, rising into the trees as they gained a few feet of elevation. The old man struggled out of the rocking canoe and chased after him. A path wound deeper into the island to a small, concealed cottage on the other side. The old man could see this was a good place to hide, especially with a newborn. Any intruders would need to cross the lake. Sound might travel, but it would be dampened and misdirected. The kids had good instincts. When they got to the cottage, it looked abandoned. Petey went to the door and knocked three times loudly, letting each knock settle in for a second before the next. The old man recognized it was some sort of predetermined code. It's me, Petey said to the door. Soon, there was a sound of a deadbolt being turned. The door was unlocked and cracked open. A young woman with a baby in a sling peered out at them. She saw the old man, and a fierce, defensive, threatening posture came over her face and body. She looked questioningly at Petey, who said quickly and reassuringly, 
It's okay. He's a doctor. He's with me. We've got supplies. Brittany softened and leaned in to accept a long embrace from Petey. The two young lovers held each other for a long time, but finally pulled apart. Brittany smiled and said, I really missed you. They stepped inside the cottage and relatched the door behind them. The old man couldn't help but smile at the sight of the infant, realizing that he didn't want to scare the girl. He did his best to look more like a doctor than a vagabond. Bzzz, pop, click! The comfortable sounds of Zane fishing filled the peaceful afternoon. The cast of his line, the float landing hard on the lake surface, and a single crank of the reel to set it. Zane and Willie sat on the remains of a broken dock, looking at the water, legs dangling in the lake. Small wavelets lapped at the shore, but the water was calm and clean. They could see the pearly reflection of empty mussel shells in the shallows, a gift from one of the local raccoons. Zane had found the fishing rod. It was a cheap Zebco, the kind with the push-button release, but it had a float and hook already attached. He rolled over some rocks and found a couple worms for bait and set to fishing, more out of memory and habit than anything else. He had gone back for Willie and Warren in the canoe. Now they were all on the island, waiting for the old man to give the girl and the baby a checkup. Bill, the dog, patrolled the shoreline, hunting frogs, but they were too fast for him to catch. He would comically stalk one, leap and splash, and then look around befuddled before moving on to his next target. I went to day camp once when I was a kid, some church thing, Zane said. You ever go to summer camp? No, Willie said. But they used to take kids out of my neighborhood in this city to camp. I never went, she continued. I guess they thought a week catching poison ivy and scratching mosquito bites would change the city kids' lives. Did it? Zane asked. It probably helped, Willie said after a moment of thinking. The kids who went seemed to enjoy it, she kept talking. Kids from my neighborhood in the city didn't get many chances to leave. Most were born there, survived there, and died there. She looked out at the lake and threw a pine cone. Now that I think of it, maybe the most important part of going to camp was the going, getting to meet people from beyond the hood. I didn't have that experience. I escaped to the library instead. The old world was a place of haves and have-nots. Zane agreed. And, for some reason, everyone went along with it without thinking. Bzz, pop, click! Zane cast to a new spot. Do you believe in what the kaiju is saying about a new future? She asked, probing. Parts of it make sense. Zane replied, slowly cranking in the bait. Parts of it sound unrealistic to me. 
Do you think we can create a better future? Learn from the past? She asked. This was the most Zane had heard her talk ever. It was like she was trying to work something out in her head. I think what will happen is not black and white. It's not the old way, and it's not the kaiju's vision. Reality is going to be somewhere in between. What are you going to do? She asked. He looked up at the sky. Well, I think we need to think for ourselves now. Even if we're not in charge, we need to stop hiding and stop blindly following. I guess that means we need to lead, if that makes any sense. We need to act and look for whatever purpose we can find. He paused and scowled and began cranking the line in. Whatever happens, he continued, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but we need to fight through the hard parts. We can't just go along. The path of least resistance never made anyone proud. He smiled sheepishly, realizing he'd been voicing his deeper thoughts and afraid he might have turned Willie off by being preachy. Biz, pop, click! The float landed dangerously close to a fallen tree surrounded by lily pads. Willie looked long and hard at the side of his head as he squinted at the expanding circles of ripples. He could feel her staring at him. Finally, she said, There's more of you than meets the eye. Zane smiled. Just then, the float ducked under, and he pulled back hard to set the hook. The float dove beneath the water, and the rod tip bent. Zane reeled the struggling fish to shore. It was a crappy, a smaller type of fish, like a small, flat bass. The lake was probably full of them. Zane wet his hand in the water under the dock and smoothed back its dorsal fins to grab it safely. He twisted the hook out of its mouth. The worm, white and flaccid, still hung there. He showed the fish to Willie, who was equal parts fascinated and afraid. Are you gonna eat it? Willie asked. Nah, too small. Zane replied, lowering the fish into the water and releasing it. We're not that desperate. The crappy disappeared into the darkness of the lake with a strong pulse of its tail. Willie put her hand on Zane's arm and exhaled deeply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, my Survivor friends. Hope you are doing well. If you are listening to this, and you know by now that you don't have to listen to this, you can just fast forward at this point. But if you are listening to this, you have just listened to Season 4, Episode 14 of After the Apocalypse, the podcast. And it's been a busy week, but I've gotten a lot done. I kicked myself in the butt, and I restarted editing of the Season 1 manuscript. My goal is to get that out as a standalone book, and at some point an audiobook as well. And to get that out as soon as possible, it's a daunting task because I basically need to walk through the manuscript line by line and incorporate all the edits from my structural editors. And this means rewriting a bunch of sections, writing new sections. It's like digging ditches. It's not a creative act per se. It's more of a a maintenance act. I always kind of like digging ditches, though. You know, you get out there, you get that shovel in the ground, feels good, work up a sweat. To get this done, to get this restarted, I committed to spend at least 25 minutes a day on the effort, and uh, I have been, and it's been moving along. And it's going a lot faster than I thought it would. So there's your lesson for you, is that if you've got these big projects that you're afraid to start because they seem big and overwhelming, just do something, right? Action cures everything. Get started, and before you know it, you'll be at the end. So I'll keep you updated, and when I feel like I can see the finish line, I'll set it up for pre-order and do all that stuff. And to give you sort of a peek behind the curtain of how I work, this show here that I'm doing takes about six to eight hours to write, to edit, and produce for each episode. And that's why I do it every other week, as I spread that across two weeks. And I usually work on it in the mornings before my day job starts. So I get up in the morning, I do my morning stuff, and I write, and I do that kind of work. And this week I've also started throwing in some evening work on editing the book. That's how I'm getting my 25 minutes in. But anyhow, slowly but surely, as they say, this week I also read a book of short stories by J.D. Salinger called Nine Stories. And I honestly, I think I found this at the dump. J.D. Salinger was a writer of fiction in the 40s and 50s and somewhat in the 60s and 70s and, and quite an interesting character. His writing is well-crafted and tight and sometimes surprising. It has a bit of a Hemingway feel to it. The two of them did interact when Salinger was in Europe during and after World War II. Now, this compilation of short stories was published in 1953 
but contains previously published works, including two of his more famous stories from The New Yorker, one called A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, which is quite a good story, and For Esme with Love and Squalor, which is another pretty good story. Now, Salinger is perhaps most famous for his novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, that should sound familiar. And that was from 1951. And this book has been consistently taught and or banned (laughs) in public schools in America for the last 50 years or so. I think I was forced to read it at some point in school, or I read it on my own when I was that age. And it's basically a novel about an angsty teenager who mopes around New York City and says, God damn, and Christ's sakes a lot. But it turns out you can't go wrong with having angsty teenagers as your target audience. The book resonated with this target audience who felt, finally someone gets me. And he sold millions of copies and basically became a recluse after that because he had enough money to live on. And I find, I find this is a common theme, though, with, with all these post-World War II American authors, or for that matter, any post-war authors, because the horrors of war force them to consider deeply the meaning of life and in many cases, the ridiculous darkness of life. And this, in turn, allows them or forces them or enables them to create great art for us to consume. And I think the old saying goes something like, hard times create strong people. Strong people create good times. Good times create weak people. And weak people create hard times. And to that, I would add a postulate that hard times also create broken, haunted souls who create fantastic art. Salinger was part of the D-Day campaigns in Europe. He was at the Battle of the Bulge and at the liberation of concentration camps. And I'm sure he had enough darkness in him to last a lifetime. And I'm sure that colored his art as well. Now, I'm on the fence as to the adventures of Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye, but I can recommend this selection of nine stories. Good writing, good art, nice short little tight little book. All right, enough of that angsty stuff. For pure entertainment value, I was pointed to a series on YouTube that you may like called Star Trek Continues. Now, I haven't watched a lot of it yet, but... It is a fan-made web series that takes the crew from the original Star Trek and the stages, right, the sets from the original Star Trek, and continues that show's premise into essentially another season of that show. And the characters are all doppelgangers of the original crew with Captain Kirk, McCoy, Sulu, Chekhov, Uhuru, Spock, Scotty. And they are played by other actors, not the original actors, new actors. A couple notables are are James Dewan's son, Chris, plays Scotty. And Grant Imahara, who you may remember from the old Mythbusters show, he plays Sulu. I haven't got around to watching through much of it yet, 
But what I did watch seemed, uh, well, a bit amateurish and a, and a bit in the uncanny valley as the actors try really hard to ape the mannerisms of their assigned original characters. But if you're a big fan of the original series, this is like a, like a lost season of the show you can watch. And it's all on YouTube for free. And with that, my friends, I will let you go off with your phasers set to angsty to hunt about the apocalypse for a bag of Gorn chips and a bottle of Tholian pop to enjoy it with. You can find all of this commentary and links to support the show on my website, oldmanapocalypse.com. I did have a nice person buy me an anonymous cup of coffee last week. And you know, with all this writing in the early mornings, I can use that coffee. And that was a nice surprise. So thank you very much. Greatly appreciated. Live long and prosper. Ow, 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 finger cramp. And keep surviving. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.